Friends, please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Bill, Katie, Squire, and I are preaching a sermon series this month and next about Jesus's grandmothers, those unlikely women who are listed in the first chapter of Matthew's gospel. Last week, Bill offered three reasons why this sprawling family tree matters. First, the list is bad history, but good theology. That is to say, it may not be historically accurate, but Matthew is using these names to support his main argument, which brackets this genealogy. Jesus is the Messiah, the son of Abraham, the son of David. And like most family trees, this one is also full of saints and sinners. The inclusion of the kind of people that we choose not to invite to our own family holidays shows us that God's grace is limitless in its creativity and ability. God can and will use anything God desires, including some of our worst human mistakes and misdeeds for God's redemptive intentions. And lastly, the inclusion of Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary is unusual and unexpected, but important. These five excluded, disenfranchised, and dishonored women foreshadow Jesus's ministry with women and others on the margins of first century society. Today we are going to hear Tamar's tale, but before we do, I want to be honest with you about the difficulty of some of these stories about these women. When you begin to explore the lives behind the names on a family tree, even this one from the Bible, you are likely to find hard and sometimes traumatic events. As I wrestled with Tamar's text, I recalled a book titled Healing Haunted Histories that has helped me to make sense of my own family history, beginning with ancestors who arrived in North America on a boat called the Spotted Cow in 1660. Generations later, my family was one of the first five to found the county that I grew up in. On a fourth grade Indiana history trip, we visited the pioneer family Founders Rock. Having my teachers and my friends notice my last name on that boulder was probably the closest I've ever come to feeling famous. But on that same field trip, we also visited the Chief Menominee Monument, which marks the beginning of the Trail of Death, which removed the Potawatomi Indians from North, uh, northern Indiana and made room for my family to settle there. I was very blessed to have teachers who taught history from a nuanced and, and included multiple perspectives. Healing Haunted Histories is the book that has helped me with my own story, and so I've used its outline to structure this sermon in a way that makes room for both the horrific and the hopeful part of Tamar's story. Shed Myers and Elaine Enns divide their reflective work into three themes. The landlines, where a family came from and where and how they got there, the bloodlines, the experiences and stories of those ancestors, and the songlines, the traditions and practices that have been passed on to us that promote resilience and point us toward the work of justice and healing. 
So I'm only going to touch a bit on the landline that is complicated and threaded through Tamar's story and Matthew's genealogy, because I believe Squire's gonna have more to say about that next week. But for today, notice that Matthew highlights two prominent ancestors and one pivotal event. From Abraham to David, from David to the exile in Babylon, from the exile to the Messiah. This list of names captures the sweeping move of a people who begin at the south end of the Euphrates River, then go to Canaan, are eventually enslaved in Egypt. It fast forwards through Moses and the Exodus back into Canaan. And then there is that brief united kingdom under David, followed by hundreds and hundreds of years where foreign power after foreign power, including the Babylonians, invades and wreaks havoc. All of this movement and conflict creates and underlies the need for a Messiah to make it right. Tamar's story takes place within the Hebrew scriptures fairly fuzzy explanation of how the people of Jesus' ancestors ended up enslaved in Egypt. Some of you are probably wondering when I was going to get to the scripture today. It took some introduction, but here we are. Uh, mature audiences, if you want to follow along, you can open your Bibles to Genesis 38. I'm going to use my own paraphrase, which I carefully crafted because my mother watches online and worships with us. So. Let us uh, hear this story. After Judah sold his brother with a colorful coat, Joseph, to the Egyptians, he married and had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Tamar was married to the oldest son, Ur. Once she was married, the responsibility for Tamar passed from her biological family into her husband's family. But Ur died, and so as was the marriage law at the time, she was then married to the second son, Onan, to carry on the family line and give her some financial security. But for whatever reason, Onan did not want to have children with Tamar, so he practiced an early form of family planning. And then Onan died, and Tamar was widowed a second time. Judah, the father-in-law, should have then married Tamar to the third son, Shelah, but perhaps he felt like Tamar might have had something to do with the first two sons' death, and he was reluctant. So he sends her back to her biological family to wait until the third son, Shelah, is old enough, or at least that's his excuse. Tamar waits, Shelah comes of age, but Judah does not send for Tamar, and that leaves her in a vulnerable place, both socially and financially. But one day, Tamar hears that Judah is going to be on a business trip to a nearby town for a sheep shearing convention. So Tamar dresses up as a prostitute and waits for Judah to pass by her corner. He doesn't recognize her and they negotiate a price, one kid from Judah's flock. Judah doesn't have the animal with him and Venmo hasn't been invented yet, so he offers his ancient identification, his signet and his staff as collateral. Now, after this interlude, Judah sends his friend back with payment, but Tamar is nowhere to be found, and Judah's too embarrassed to keep looking for her. But months after their encounter, Judah hears that Tamar is pregnant. Judah, as is his right under ancient marriage law, orders Tamar to be executed. But Tamar, Tamar pulls out this ancient identification, this signet and staff that she still has, and says, not so fast. 
It's the owner of these who made me pregnant. Judah admits the items are his and says, she is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son Shelah. Tamar becomes the mother of twins, one of whom, if I've counted the begats correctly, is the seventh great-grandfather of King David. And that is the PG-13 version of how Tamar becomes one of Jesus' grandmothers. Please don't worry, I am not going to suggest that the story has much to tell us about 21st century marriage and relationships, because I don't think it does. But it does have something else that we need to hear today. On these cold and snowy winter nights, I have been binge-watching the seasons of the HBO series Julia. Many times I have Googled to see if some of the events in the show actually happened. For example, did Julia pay for her own pilot episode out of her own pocket? No. Was WGBH reluctant to air the show on public television? Again, no. Was Julia shaken by feminist Betty Friedan's critique of the French chef because it encouraged women to spend more time in the kitchen? No record of such a conversation exists. So like Matthew's genealogy, the HBO series, Julia is bad history, but it has a good message. The series is crafted to highlight both the subtle and overt ways that women, like the producer Alice Naiman and Julia's best friend Avis, exercised their rights in the 1960s. Julia's relationship to the women's movement was complicated and nuanced. She was an early TV television personality who paved the way for many more. She broke new ground, but she also spent her time doing traditionally women's pursuits, cooking. In this fictionalized account of her life, Julia uses her wit and her culinary skills to get men to allow her to host her TV show. In HBO's retelling, Julia's distinctive voice and signature chocolate cake open doors closed by closed-minded men. Julia's character is charming and cunning. She's a trickster, and so, I think, is Tamar. With a father-in-law unwilling to care for her well-being, Tamar takes her fate into her own hands. She uses her wit and her wiles to secure what is her due in this ancient patriarchal system, the security of family. The Women's Bible Commentary puts it this way. Tamar doesn't try to challenge the system of the time, but she does hold men accountable for maintaining the status of, and rights of women at that time. She becomes, according to one source, the only woman in the New Testament to be called righteous. Many have called Tamar's tale scandalous, but focusing on the dicey details obscures the reason she might be included in Matthew's version of Jesus' genealogy. God will use what God will to accomplish God's will. Tamar illustrates God's definition of righteousness, which is concerned with the vulnerable, we see this unexpected kind of righteousness so often in Jesus's ministry that we should expect it by now. Jesus talked with and ate with many whom society considered scandalous and unworthy. Jesus's righteousness is then doubly inherited, first from his divine parent who cares for the least, the lost, and the left out, and also from his grandmother Tamar who shows us that God's righteousness transcends our imperfect human laws and systems. 
Righteousness is the trait that passes through the bloodline from Tamar to Jesus. So let us find now that song line of hope that emerges out of this complicated history. Tomorrow is the actual birthday of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was born in 1929 to his parents, Alberta Williams King and Martin Luther King Sr. That's his family tree. But the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s, which Dr. King led, had its own ancestors and family tree that helped pave the way in the decades before. Ella Baker is called the mother of the civil rights movement. Around the time Dr. King was born, Ella Baker graduated college and got to work. She organized people and campaigns for influential organizations like the NAACP and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and later the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Ms. Baker, which I understand is the respectful way to address her, taught ordinary people to stand up for themselves. Her work for rights was vital, but behind the scenes, she knew how to get young people to show up and stand up. One of my professors and early mentors in my educational career was Dr. Charles Payne, who wrote this about the essential quality of Ella Baker's often unforeseen, unseen work. If ordinary people aren't capable of standing up for their own interest, whatever concessions are won today can be withdrawn tomorrow. Ella Baker earned the nickname Fundi, a Swahili word meaning a person who teaches a craft to the next generation. Tamar, Julia, Child, Ella Baker, and countless women offer a rich inherited songline of hope. And this is what we are looking for when we dive into these sometimes complicated stories of the women who are named as Jesus's ancestors and grandmothers. So, let me end with poet and theologian Patrick Otuma's prayer for these five women in Jesus's genealogy. Grandmothers of Jesus, in your stories we hear of your courage and creativity, your tenacity and the things you face down. Here today we stand in the time after you and look back with gratitude for stories like yours that help us live today. Help us live today and all the stories of our lives so that we can stand in your great ache and wash. Amen. <laughs>